Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy and Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. And I am here, as always, with my pod buddy, Anna Hunter. Hi, Anna Hi, Sharon. I'm Anna Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician. I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. And Policy Forum Pod, as our regular listeners know, is based here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University and is produced by Policy Forum. You can visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study if you want to find out about the amazing array of degree programs and short courses on offer. And so many of those courses are directly addressing the kinds of policy challenges that we are talking about at the moment around systems under strain and how we can do a little better in policy design and delivering services that matter. Anna Greta, what an extraordinary conversation we had last week talking about systems that are under strain. Absolutely. And and Sharon, I am a little concerned. We uh, Healthcare is a, an area of, uh, of system complexity and system challenge that I suspect we could talk about for a year or more. It is a complicated area. And I, I was so grateful to both Claire Skinner and Leslie Russell for their nuanced discussion last week that took us through the remarkable challenges that are currently faced in the Australian healthcare sector. And I think contextualising that historically, that these challenges aren't new, but they are at the moment really significant and the need for an imaginative rethink of what the healthcare sector can and should be delivering is badly needed. Yeah, I think that fundamental message of how badly systems are performing and how badly systems are supporting all of us at the moment was was an important one, but a really disturbing one. Mm. Um, and I think we're seeing that across so many sectors at the moment. You know, I, I, I agree with you, Anna Greta, that healthcare is just so fundamentally important to all of our lives. And at the moment, so many of those systems are really not functioning as they need to be. So mm. we will keep exploring these things, Anna Greta, and looking not just at the problems but searching for some solutions. 
And so for those of you who are listening who are interested in our mini-series approach, you might be interested to know that we are no longer using the phrase mini-series when it comes to systems under strain, but I suspect this will be the recurring theme for our podcasts for the rest of this year and I suspect beyond Uh, because as you've just mentioned, Sharon, we've got such a large number of systems and then parts of our systems that are really struggling and moreover, there is this new sense of optimism that perhaps there's an opportunity for change. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I think we will have this systems under strain as a theme and maybe we'll bundle up some issues along the way as we talk about it. But, you know, I must say, Greta, as we're having some of these conversations, they are very confronting um, and we can see around us just how much systems are under strain. But you're right, there is a sense of optimism in these conversations at the moment and I think there is a real opportunity for us to do things differently. Um, but today we're going to stay with the healthcare sector. Would you like to talk us through what sort of conversation we're going to have? Let's let's bundle a, a few episodes on health and, and as I mentioned, we might talk about this for a very long time, but we will try to restrict it to just a few episodes. And so today we are continuing to explore the challenges that we see in the healthcare sector, uh, a system that has been under enormous strain for, uh, for quite some time and particularly in the context of the pandemic. On today's episode, we're going to talk about primary care and general practice and their interactions with specialty services. And we're particularly going to focus today on mental health and well-being. Mental illness can interfere with our cognitive, emotional or social function. While many of us understand the challenges of anxiety or depression, the recent Australian Bureau of Statistics National Study of Mental Health and Wellbeing shows just how remarkably common mental illness is in the Australian context, with 43.7% of Australian adults having experienced a mental disorder in their lifetime, and around one in five of us having been affected by mental illness in the last 12 months. So in a time of immense strain for our healthcare sector, how does the system support mental health for so many members of our community? How are mental illnesses treated and how does the healthcare system provide the support that is so badly needed for so many of our population at the moment? To take us through these complex issues today and to begin to construct some of the solutions, we have two remarkable guests from the Australian National University from the College of Health and Medicine, both of my colleagues, and I'll get the two of them to start by introducing themselves. Thank you, Anna Greta, and thank you very much to you and Sharon for having me on today. I'm uh, Phil Kitely. I'm an academic at the Australian National University and as well as doing some teaching and research Through the ANU, I'm also in a clinical role as a psychiatrist, particularly interested in perinatal mental health. And I think since we've come through the pandemic, probably like a lot of people here, it's focused all of our attention on uh, clinician well-being, and, and that has become more of a research interest for me as well. Mm, fantastic. I'm, I'm sure we'll cover quite a bit of that in today's discussion. Beside you, of course, is the inimitable Dr. Louise Stone. Louise, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Sure. So I'm a GP and I've had a long history of uh, being a clinician interested in mental health, but I've also run a couple of master's degrees in psychiatry 
And my PhD was in medically unexplained symptoms. So I have this reputation of talking about things that are odd and difficult to define. Um, I've also just finished a master's degree in value-based healthcare. And at the moment, I'm doing some research watching young people try and navigate their way around the mental health system in the ACT. Mm, fantastic. So uh, you, I'm sure the listeners can understand why we have the two of you on today to talk about just some of the struggles that we face in our healthcare sector. So I thought a good place to start in our conversation around mental health and wellbeing and its dynamic with our health system, it might be great to hear both of you map out what can be a complicated and confusing system, particularly for patients and for loved ones. But but I have to say also for those of us who work within healthcare, there are many movable parts uh, or parts both moving and otherwise, and it can be easy to get lost. We've got primary care and specialist care, allied health care, including psychology. We've got hospitals, both public and private. We've got outpatient facilities. How does this all work? And I thought perhaps if we get the two of you to map out your your elements of the health system and we can look at what those intersections are. Louise, could we start with you? What role does someone in your position as a general practitioner play for patients who might need mental health assistance? Well, I have a few roles, but I think the The famous one is to be the cupboard under the stairs when people get tossed off the edge and have nowhere else to go. And I think in general practice, one of the things that we've been doing more and more recently is managing the patients that are not sick enough for public and too sick for private, what we call the missing middle. I think things have become a lot more complex recently and there's a few reasons why that's so. Um, When I graduated, I guess we had federal and state. So we had primary care, which is traditionally funded by federal, and we had state services in terms of hospitals and hospital outpatients. And then there was this whole social care community sector that would pick up things like housing, social work, all the social determinants of health. We've had a few more things come into the mix. Um, There is this tendency that when there's space between the marbles in a jar, you put in some more marbles, which actually creates more space. And the few marbles that have been added to the jar in the last 10 years are the primary health networks, which are commissioned services, um, commissioned by the local area, and theoretically they are decided by the local area, except for headspace, which is mandatory across the country for some reason that's quite interesting. We've also had the institutes that have had um, a mixed investment. So we've got some investment from um, philanthropy, we've got some investment from grants, we've got some investment from government, and that's Headspace, Beyond Blue, Black Dog, Brain and Mind. And they've become these pseudo-commercial entities that sit in quite an interesting spot in more of a more of an American type of system, I think. And then we have the NDIS, which operates in parallel to everything, and My Aged Care, which also operates in parallel to everything. And what can then happen is that you end up with various organisations that all cross over. So we have some patients who get multiple services and some patients who get none. We The inverse care law is getting worse. So the poorer you are, the less services you get and the more mental health problems you have. And obviously the opposite is true. And then we have another space, which is the online space, and I think that's become a really interesting space. 
And I think there is a little bit of Emperor's New Clothes phenomenon happening there if you actually look at the data, although we hear that online programs are extremely effective. The dropout rate is in the studies is up to about 95%, and that's of the people who can actually read them. The literacy levels are quite high. So we are targeting those online solutions to a very elite subset of the community and they're not hitting the people who need it most. I think that's why as GPs we're often picking people up who really don't have the literacy, the health literacy, the resources, the capacity, the cognition, all those things to find their way anywhere but us. And that's becoming increasingly challenging for us as a service. And I will say to Phil, um, one of the biggest issues, of course, is that we don't have enough psychiatrists in the country and we really miss our psychiatry colleagues because I think diagnosis is getting more and more complex and when you add in different elements of uh, psychiatric diagnosis, it's often very difficult for us to get a psychiatrist to see our patients and to work with us to try and work out what is going on. We really miss that interaction when we have it. It's absolutely marvellous and we really value our colleagues that are able to support us in that way. Uh, Louise, you remind me that that I certainly, when I talk with my patients as a specialist cardiologist, that I, I always reinforce that the GP is at the centre of coordinating care. With a, with a good GP, uh, patients are in extraordinary hands, and it's the most important part of our healthcare sector. And, and certainly, there's a case to say we undervalue it immensely. Phil, how does the specialist uh, elements of, of mental health care uh, sit beside this, this central part of primary care? Um, you're a psychiatrist and, and you work in a hospital environment, but, but how do we describe those, those specialist services to our patients and to those who might be needing assistance? How, how do the bits work together? Well, I don't want to, um, to uh, begin too negatively, but work together is, is really an aspiration. I um, uh, I completely agree, Anna Greta, that we want the GPs to be central in the care of our patients. But I think you also touched on something really important there, which is around how GPs are valued, and we'll probably come back to that. In terms of what psychiatrists do, I am probably uh, psychiatrists are maybe prominent in people's minds when they think of mental health care, but we make up a very small number of the total of mental health workers, which is nurses, social workers, occupational therapists, and um, psychologists, and all of the other sort of community workers who work alongside them. Psychiatrists in Australia, about 30% work exclusively in private settings, so that would be usually outpatient clinics or private hospitals and funded through Medicare. About a third will work exclusively in the public system and about a third will work across both settings. Uh, I, I've worked in, in all the settings, but at the moment I work exclusively in the public health system. I, I think maybe... Um, one of the things that uh, I think is particularly telling about psychiatric care at the moment, and I'm sure um, Louise will want to expand on this point, but we've had a tremendous investment in psychology services in recent years through the Better Access Scheme. And 
I think that uh, there's some very good data that's come out that's been published in the Medical Journal of Australia and also the Australasian Psychiatry Journal. And um, I'd encourage people to read some of the things that, for example, Jeff Louis has written, one of the researchers here at the ANU. But a lot of that funding has gone to more advantaged populations. And uh, I think um, uh, that's the case for Medicare billing. And Medicare billing, it comes through, you know, through the Commonwealth government. But um, a lot of that billing has been for people who live in more advantaged postcodes in Australia. Um, I think that probably, for example, psychiatry private billing, the poorest 20% of, um, uh, of people from uh, 20% coming from poor postcodes use about 10% of long term follow up Medicare billing items, whereas the richest um, 20% use over 30% of those item numbers. So, what, what that means is that, particularly for long term follow up in the private system, that's really being used mainly by people who live in more advantaged suburbs. So that means that people who are in more disadvantaged suburbs are getting less continuity of care from private psychiatrists. If they do manage to get to see a psychiatrist, it's likely to be a one-off assessment. They're going to be getting their care through systems that are funded through state and territory governments. And uh, as Louise points out, um, because of the numbers of uh of services available in those settings, it's only the very sickest who can get access. We're going to talk a little bit about the pandemic in in just a moment. But before we do that, I wanted to get both of your thoughts on how the mental health system was functioning pre-pandemic. And I must say, as as the the one person in this conversation who's not a a medical practitioner, I find it incredibly confusing as I hear you talking through what the system is. And so I wonder if you could perhaps talk through what the experience was for patients um, pre-pandemic, especially when they're going through really difficult times and might have reduced capacity to, to navigate a very complex system. And I'd particularly like to hear your thoughts about this issue of people who are in um, low-income postcodes or people who are experiencing disadvantage being left out of the system. You know, the research that I do is focused very much on the experiences of people who are living with poverty. And poverty itself puts incredible stress on people. And so, you know, one, one would assume that it may be those people who are most in need of support. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how patients navigate the system generally, but particularly on those people who are experiencing disadvantage in other ways. Um, Louise, would you like to, to, to lead off with that? Yeah, sure. So I think there are multiple layers of systemic disadvantage. There's the obvious ones, for instance, um, there are very few child and adolescent psychiatrists who don't work in cities. So geographic isolation is a major concern. Uh, transcultural psychiatry is difficult to access, those sorts of things. But I think we need to think a little bit more broadly. Psychiatry is interesting because I think it's early in its development as a discipline, despite the fact it's been around for a long time. I often think 
that a category like depression is a bit like what we used to call consumption in the 19th century. It's probably a a whole lot of different things all thrown in the one bucket. You know, if you had consumption, you you threw up blood and you lost weight and you died, and that could have been lung cancer and it could have been cystic fibrosis. It could have been all sorts of things. I think one of the issues with depression is that all the research is done generally in city populations. And so you get first episode depression in patients who have no comorbidity because that's the best way to do a randomised control trial. And so the evidence that everyone grounds their so-called evidence-based practice is in a population that is very different to the disadvantaged populations who actually need what we get out the end. And in the 10 years before the pandemic, there was a move towards this simplifying of diagnosis, which I think is a real problem. We moved towards tick box diagnoses where people could rate themselves on an iPad in the waiting room and then it would come through or they could self-nominate on their tick boxes in, in you know, their online settings, come up with a diagnosis and then move towards so-called evidence-based treatment. Diagnosis is so much more complex than that. And when you have disadvantaged communities and you've got layers of of trauma, you've got gender dysphoria, you've got diversity, culturally and linguistically diverse people who see their health in a very different way. Um, the experience of mental illness is a sociocultural experience. The way that we see good mental health is a sociocultural thing. You put layer on layer and layer of that with poverty and disadvantage and all the social determinants, throw those in together, you do not have a population that is similar to the population on which evidence is grounded. Um, you can have a broken leg in Bondi and you'll get the same treatment if you have your broken leg in Broome, but it's very different if you have, say, depression in Bondi and then you take that experience in poverty in Western Sydney when you're a torture and trauma survivor who's a refugee and experiencing systemic racism and poverty. So I think we have a problem with the, the discipline thinking things down. And, you know, I don't think this is a psychiatry thing. I think we're missing the psychiatrists in the discourse because we don't have enough of them. And I really think that we need more debate around layers rather than trying to create this homogeneity and and do the usual, here's the diagnosis, there's the evidence-based treatment, and out we come the end with cure. That's an oversimplification, but it's grounding a lot of our strategies, and I think that's a real shame. Do you mind if I come in here, Louise? I think that uh, as um, Louise will be well aware, the research looking at mental health care in disadvantaged communities and particularly looking at the role of GPs in those in those settings the people who benefit most from um, continuity of care in their relationships with healthcare providers are people with chronic illness, people with mental illness, people with drug and alcohol problems. They're also the people who are most likely to live in disadvantaged postcodes, and they're also the people with the highest burden of physical illness because of the common, uh, common developmental factors behind physical and mental illness. So if you look at billing rates in the private system for psychologists and psychiatrists, there's a great disparity between advantaged and disadvantaged areas. That, that disparity is much less when you look at GP billing. So when you're talking about access to mental health care 
for people in disadvantaged suburbs. That is either their GP or it's the state or territory mental health systems. It's not private psychologists and it's not private psychiatrists. Then GPs need to refer and, and broker relationships with all the other um, uh, multiplying NGO type providers, which Louise mentioned before. I think just getting back to this issue of compartmentalizing or diagnosing, there has been uh, a push for and, and this was, I think, a well-meant intention to try to move psychiatrists into a role of diagnosing more and not providing so much ongoing care. And that was incentivized through Medicare item numbers so that psychiatrists can earn almost twice as much if they see someone once and only once. And I, I think that probably has had the result of increasing access to psychiatrists. It's increased turnover in psychiatrists, probably in more advantaged communities. But interestingly, if you look at uh, psychiatrists seeing people once versus psychiatrists seeing people multiple times, if, you are, uh, if you're looking at people from more advantaged postcodes, they're more likely to see psychiatrists multiple times and people from more disadvantaged are more likely to see people once. And if you see a psychiatrist once, you're much more likely to get a diagnosis. And if you see someone multiple times, you're much more likely to develop a relationship and for the provider to be able to see the complexity in your situation, which is probably... Uh, related to social and cultural factors and other pressures on you. And and at the moment, in disadvantaged areas, it's GPs who are doing that, not private psychiatrists and psychologists. The story is a bit different in the state and territory systems. I'm re reminded by the hashtag that Sharon and I use quite a bit of valuing care. And I, and I know in the work that I do as a physician and cardiologist, those longitudinal relationships is one of the most extraordinary privileges in healthcare, um, and yet I don't. I think we often don't have the incentives in place to really to to value the relationship forming elements of our healthcare sector. We we will need to take a break shortly, but before we do, I'd love the two of you just to reflect briefly on the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. The last two and a half years, three years, if we include the, the impacts of the Black Summer experience, have had a, a profound impact on the health and well-being of the Australian population. And I think we're just beginning to understand what that looks like. Have there been any uh, positives that have come out of this from a, from a mental health perspective? Or are we seeing a system that was under strain struggle more? Phil, we might start with you and then go to Louise. So in general, any cracks in the system have widened. I think the big new player on the scene, which Louise mentioned before, is telehealth. And I think we're yet to really fully understand what impact this has had, particularly for people in rural and remote areas. They've definitely found there's a lot of research in the US which has found that uh, the most disadvantaged people in rural areas are not making use of telehealth options. We know that even where telehealth is used, there's often an aspiration for it to be a video conferenced session, which lasts the amount of time that a face-to-face -face one would, but it often turns into a brief phone call, either due to technological problems or fatigue with the 
jobs with the video conference medium from the the um, patients or the providers. So that's actually something that needs to be explored a lot more, but actually has the potential to reduce some health disparities for people, particularly in regional areas, and that is something potentially quite positive to have come out of the pandemic. In general, though, whatever existing problems there were in the health system with equity and access to care have have worsened. And I think maybe after the break, if we talk about health providers and the impact on health providers, we'll start to see a bit more of the detail there. Yeah, it's a great topic for us to cover. Louise, have the cracks got bigger? Have there been any glimmers of hope through that crack? What, what's been your experience in the last couple of years? General practice is going under. So what's happening with us is that there has been substantial disinvestment in general practice for decades. We are still under-investing in general practice. And the largest impact, I think, has been a sense of betrayal. And what happened was, for us, the, the consistent lack of respect by federal and state governments has meant that people are leaving the workforce. So in general practice, we had things like we weren't considered frontline workers, so we weren't supplied with PPE. We had the West Australian Premier saying it was about time we had some ethics and started seeing people with respiratory illness, despite the fact that we were. We were 1B in the virus um, immunisation rollout, again, because we weren't considered to be frontline workers. Um, Our corporate practices have gone under financially because of the substantial disinvestment, and yet the government has come out time and time again and said that we should be bulk billing. We've had people spit at our staff. We've had all sorts of things going on, particularly female doctors. The suicide rates of female doctors are three times the average, and part of that is they are carrying the substantial mental health load. It earns me six times per minute more to take off a mole than it does to do a mental health consultation. It earns me three times as much to inject someone with a flu vaccine. That degree of disrespect has been crippling. And we're seeing the same in the NHS, actually. We're seeing the NHS um, suicide rates of doctors going up, GPs going up, and also substantial loss in the profession. The number of people joining general practice has dropped from 50% of the junior doctors to 15% in the last three years because it's not seen as financially viable anymore to go into general practice. So we are in a really difficult space. And especially in rural, we're having practices close because they cannot keep their doors open anymore. And yet the same rhetoric turning up about greedy doctors. So it's been an incredibly difficult space from a moral distress point of view. Um, We're used to strategic grovelling. We're pretty good at trying to get our patients the care that they need. It's been impossible and progressively more impossible in mental health And we're carrying patients that we cannot protect, and that is really distressing. So it takes me nine months to get a patient with anorexia into a private bed in Sydney. And during that time, they're gradually dying in front of me, and I cannot change that. Um, that That is what's unsustainable. I'll work. We'll all work long hours. We all do. But to work long hours without being able to protect our patients and do our jobs, that's the thing that um, 
you run out of you run out of capacity to hold that degree of complexity. So I think in terms of general practice, much higher difficulties with mental health concerns from the population, but also our workforce is crumbling around their ears. And I'm not sure the way out of that unless we have some fairly firm leadership to um, to stop us and our receptionists being the front line of explaining why it is that we are unable to provide the service that they deserve. We will take a short break now. This, I think, is a, is a really difficult place to break this conversation. That was an incredibly powerful explanation from, from both of you as to what it is that medical practitioners are facing and, and Louise, particularly what general practitioners are facing. Um, we will put some numbers in the show notes um, for people who, who do need support as they're listening to this conversation. Anna Greta and I talk a lot, as Anna Greta has already said, about valuing care um, throughout this podcast. And I think if we don't value the people who provide care, then it is never possible for us to create a caring society. We'll come back in just a moment to start to look forward to some of the, the solutions that we may uh, be able to put in place to to lead us out of this very difficult place that we find ourselves in. Um, so please, listeners, don't go away. We will be back with Philip Kitely and Louise Stone in just a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We are partway through a crucial conversation today with two remarkable healthcare professionals, Dr. Louise Stone and Dr. Phil Knightley. We've been speaking about the challenges of mental illness and mental health access in the Australian context in a healthcare sector that is under strain. And we've just before the break begun to touch on the challenge of uh, the health and well-being of people who are working in the healthcare sector. We know that people working in healthcare have struggled with their mental health through the pandemic. It's been increasingly reported uh, with numerous reports of staff burnout and people who have been leaving the sector. Louise was mentioning previously the, the issues with uh, people leaving in general practice, but it's been an issue across the, 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 the healthcare system. And I'd love to hear from both of you what you think the scale of the problem is here and how it's got to this point and probably more importantly, how we can reprioritise so that we can address problems with burnout and, as Louise mentioned, the issues with, with moral jeopardy. Phil, what are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, it's always been there in the background, the 
um, strain on health workers, but the pandemic has brought it to the foreground and made it crystal clear. And I think those of us working in the health system at the moment are often having to cover multiple roles because you know, jobs aren't filled, um, having to work long hours, are acutely aware of how under-resourced and strained all parts of the health system are. And I think what um, what this gives us, though, is is an opportunity to really have the the question of healthcare worker well-being addressed square on and and rather than um, having it as a secondary consideration and to have it actually part of the solution of what we know that our patients need and people who would like to access the mental health care system. So we've got this dilemma, which is that we want more continuity of care for patients who are in our most disadvantaged communities because we know that that's what produces the best outcomes for them, getting to know one practitioner that they trust in the long term to help them navigate what's going on for them. What we know is that the healthcare workers who are asked to do that work are stretched and exhausted. And I think that, um, you know, I was talking before about people who do work in um uh, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists and other people who might administer mental health care in the private system, um, I, I think that we should be careful of being critical of healthcare workers who might choose not to work with the most disadvantaged patients because they're really two sides of the same coin. When we say that healthcare workers need to look after themselves, healthcare workers are getting burnt out. Um, healthcare workers are having suicidal thoughts or their own mental health struggles. That leads healthcare workers to think, how can I sustain this in the long term? And some of the research that uh, I've been doing recently is looking at the experiences of healthcare workers who have experienced the loss of one of their clients to suicide, and that can be quite a devastating event for any clinician. One of the questions that comes to their mind is how long can I keep doing this work and how do I look after myself? Because people are drawn to mental health work often from a very strong sense of vocation, a great desire to help less, uh, less advantaged people, and they want to keep that flame alive. They want to keep that passion burning. And when they're faced with some of the resourcing constraints in the system and a lot of the disadvantage which is not a consequence of the healthcare system, but a consequence of inequity in society, then people think, I want to keep doing this work, but how can I do it in a way that allows me to continue to be emotionally present and engaged with my patients? And we know that psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, and other healthcare workers like GPs um, who work with very disadvantaged populations then look at ways of managing their own. Uh, involvement with that work so that they can keep doing it in the long term. I'd certainly encourage people to read Professor Marie Bismarck's book that's recently come out, Experiences of Health Workers in the COVID-19 Pandemic, in their own words, a fantastic piece of work uh, looking at interviews and data from uh, almost 8,000 frontline healthcare workers during the pandemic. And I think what she was able to show was that 
the healthcare workforce is actually very resilient, but faced with extraordinary pressures. So we have an opportunity now to think about uh, we've got this group of motivated, driven, um, passionate clinicians who've often chosen to do mental health work because of how strongly they feel about it. They want to work with disadvantaged communities. What are the systems that we can put in place to make that a desirable choice for them? How do we help them feel valued in those roles? And value, uh, Louise has mentioned GPs feeling valued. Sometimes I think that debate gets reduced to financial questions. But when we hear people saying, I feel like I'm not getting paid enough, often what they're saying is I don't feel valued. Absolutely. Uh, And alongside that, of course, is how we can support our healthcare workers through an extraordinarily challenging time. And there is some work done that I'm sure that the two of you know much better than I do about doctors particularly accessing mental health support when they need it. Uh, and the the sorts of barriers that might be in place that that sometimes uh, might might prevent a healthcare worker from accessing the support that's needed at a particular moment. Louise, you have some experience in this area. What are the barriers that healthcare workers face when when they're needing some support and attention uh, for their own health and wellbeing? And how can we change that? Um, I just wanted to talk for a sec about systemic barriers because I think systemic barriers are really important. We need a little bit of truth-telling, in my opinion. We can no longer provide best practice care for everybody in the public system. Nobody says that. Ambulance ramping is not best practice. People waiting for two years to see somebody for their rectal bleeding is not best practice. We know this. And when you can't provide, when you're in a resource-poor environment and you can't provide best practice, then you need to make some difficult decisions. You can either be upfront and honest about that and have a community consultation and decide what you're going to provide, or you can do what's been happening the last 10 years, which is to create systemic barriers so that only certain people can get through the system. And what you tend to do when you do that is you make complex systems that require care navigators. We only need care navigators because our system is structured in a way that is opaque. You add that to uh, other layers of disadvantage. Rich people can look up who to see. They can fill out 46 pages of a disability support pension form. They can understand what on earth the NDIS application means when it says discuss the barriers to your learning potential. I mean, What do you make of that when you're coming from an area with low literacy? So we create systems and structures that have the slightly fortunate side effect in some ways of reducing the number of people who are accessing care. But what happens is, of course, it entrenches disadvantage. What we aren't doing is we aren't getting leadership standing up and saying to the community, we can no longer afford this and we have to say no to things. It is not right that some of my patients will see eight orthopaedic surgeons to get eight different opinions before they decide which person will fix their hip and yet there's somebody else in Western Sydney who's waiting two to three years for a consultation. We have to start being able to say no. And general practice used to be able to say no, but we can no longer do that. The rhetoric of choice has meant 
that individual choice is of such a premium that we are saying GPs should no longer be able to gatekeep. You should be able to go around that. You should be able to negotiate your way through other services. And I guess you either put a clinician in that role and say a clinician will make the choice whether Mrs Jones or Mrs Smith gets the next hip or you put systemic barriers in the way so that Mrs Jones never gets in the door. I think that's what's happening now and that is very distressing because what then happens is the clinicians become the front line of explaining to Mrs Smith and Mrs Jones that despite all the rhetoric around how wonderful our hospitals are, they are not getting in the door and they won't get in the door. And that is the thing that is so profoundly distressing. We need the Winston Churchill moment of somebody being prepared to stand up and say our healthcare workers are doing their best and this is the best that we as a community can manage. Instead, we have the rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic moment where we have a lot of people saying that we can somehow streamline our system and make it so much more efficient if we put in more people or we reorganise things or we do whatever it is we do. And, and particularly if we move things down the tree, and I have no problem with allocating different tasks to different people. I work in teams all the time, but we cannot afford not to measure that. We have a circumstance where we've got clinics with our our nurse-led clinics, for instance, and working with nurse practitioners is wonderful, and I work with nurse practitioners in my youth mental health service. But we have to work out what's going to be the cheapest way to deliver those services, not what would we health professionals like to do. And that's a really hard, hard thing to have to do, but it's, I think it's time for us to be having those difficult conversations. I think measurement, so when, when you go into medical school, you think that you'll be in the emergency department um, doing dramatic interventions, and then after you've been in medical practice for a while, you start to become interested in outcome measures and uniform collection of outcome measures. But there have been multiple inquiries over the past few decades that have called for uniform reporting of outcome measures because what we need to know, particularly as our mental health care field fragments into multiple providers, how sick are the people who are being seen and when they get treatment, do they get better? And those two really fundamental questions that allow us to say, should the government spend more money on GPs? Should they spend more money on private psychologists? Should they spend money on state and territory mental health systems? We're really struggling to answer those basic questions because we don't have very good standardized collection of measures of how sick people are and how better they get with the treatments that we're giving them. And I think that's one of the challenges that the government has going forward, um, which they need to, uh, they, they have a dilemma where when you expand a program, like, for example, the Better Access Scheme, you increase access, but you don't um, know that you're necessarily increasing access to the sickest people, and you don't necessarily know if when you um, spend that money, the sickest people are getting better from the intervention. Could I just jump in there and say I agree? 
And I certainly agree with the sickest people and I, I think every government service should be measuring their demographics of the patients that they accept and the patients that they reject because I think that we have systemic bias about the patients we reject. But just a moment on outcome measures because I think this is really important. We are seeing outcome measures, but what that's driving us towards, I think, is certain services cherry-picking patients who are likely to get better. There are patients who will not get better. And we don't have a problem with that in multiple sclerosis. We don't have a problem with that in epilepsy. And I'm hearing a lot of criticism around general practice at the moment that a lot of our patients are not being measured in terms of outcome measures. But there are patients for whom maintenance is a goal. And we have to be really careful, I think, that we don't apply the wrong outcome measures to the wrong patients. And I often say it's like, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't use osteoarthritis outcome measures for rickets and we wouldn't use osteoarthritis measures for fractures, but we're very happy to use depression measures for trauma. And I just think that's really inappropriate. And what it means is our most um, challenging patients are less likely to um, get services and that's a real problem. I think we've got a lot of services treating mild to moderate at the moment. Yeah, it's a really I, – I, Louise, I'm going to have to have you back on the on the pod at some point to talk about value-based healthcare and, and this, this paradigm shift from, from, from what we like to measure historically of rates of doing things to people to asking people what it is that matters for them in their life and how can the health service support that. And perhaps that's a good point for us just to to begin to wrap up a conversation, which honestly I, I could continue for some hours. Uh, but I'd very much like to talk about prevention. The Bureau of Statistics data that I mentioned at the beginning of today's podcast paints a picture that the mental health and well-being of the Australian population needs attention. Uh, and that that for care, caring for our society should be a focus, not just of our healthcare se- sector, but beyond that. Obviously, it's important to care for people who are presenting as patients to general practice and to specialty uh, services, but it's also important to be keeping people as healthy as possible before they present to a healthcare professional. So I'd, I'd love, as we wrap up this conversation today, for both of you to reflect on what society can do to care for ourselves, to care for others, to care for community, to reduce that burden of disease which we're seeing growing at the moment. What sorts of things would you like to see us put in place? Phil, we might start with you. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll keep it fairly simple. In terms of our healthcare workers, I think um, systems that value relationships uh, with our clients and with our patients in the long term and that see that as an integral part of healthcare. We know that's what patients want. They want long-term relationships with trusted health professionals. And we know that when it's properly supported, that's what doctors want as well. And that's what nurses want. And that's what psychologists want. They want want to work with the most disadvantaged people. They want to be adequately supported to do it. And uh, that's when they feel that they're contributing and doing something valuable for society. In terms of how we make a society um, that, uh, that is um, doing its utmost in terms of preventative care, I think that uh, really that's what draws me into perinatal mental health. If we're not investing 
significantly in the early years, and that includes through pregnancy and the first two years postpartum when so much is laid down in how the immune system and the brain functions that sets you up not just to be an emotionally well-adjusted adult, but also to be a healthy in every other respect person, then we're not spending money on the right things. And in the end, we'll end up spending more money. Louise, what are your thoughts? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. For those who aren't aware of that, um, the social determinants of health are on the bottom and treatment is on the top of this little pyramid. And we need a roof over everyone's head, um, a safe place to be and food on the table. And we also have to stop traumatising people with our social structures. I have people who would rather beg on the streets than walk into Centrelink. Something is wrong. I, you know, We have our youth workers that have to accompany them into Centrelink because it is so traumatic. This is, this is wrong and it causes harm and we have to move past that and to start treating people with the respect they deserve. And that includes the wonderful work that's done by peer workers and by people in the community to try and reduce uh, systemic racism, systemic sexism, uh, trauma of that um, type because we can't get past that sort of trauma just by throwing a little bit of online CBT and sprinkling it on top like icing on a cake. We have to get to the bottom and get them young. So I'm, I'm with Phil on that one. And just give me time. You know, there's no reason why, uh, talking um, policy, there's no reason why a 40-minute consultation um, should require me to donate money if I'm going to um, if I'm going to bulk bill a patient at the moment I donate half of the patient's fee because otherwise they can't afford to pay this that's the cost of care is twice as much as Medicare pays we can't keep that going we must have primary care available to all and that includes saying and making the hard decision that there are a lot of really good things we could do in health, but if they don't make a better input to our patients than public dentistry, we should stop. We have to look at the cost of care and decide which things we'll invest in, whether or not they're good things or they're they're not good things. They can be very good, but if they're not better than standard primary care, we can't get standard primary care to everyone then we need to invest in that first before we start doing fancy bits and pieces. We are going to need to draw this conversation to a close. As Anna Greta said, it's a conversation that we could have had for much, much longer. And I think a, a set of issues that we will return to again, I think those final messages about the importance of relationships, which are at the end of the day, what are essential to human beings is so important. And Louise, that point that you made about um, the the trauma that people experience because of the range of lack in their lives and the way in which systems have added to that trauma is something that we simply have to address in this country. And perhaps we do have a small window of opportunity at the moment to begin to address some of those issues. But thank you both for joining us today. This has been an extraordinary conversation, one that we will come back to again and again. Louise Stone, Philip Kitely, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Anna Greta, that was an incredibly powerful conversation. And as I was listening to the last comments that um, Phil and Louise made, you know, I, I couldn't help but reflect on some research that, that I've been doing recently. 
And I remember talking to a, a young boy um, who was was going through um, some healthcare issues and him talking about the fact that no one listened to him, um, talking about his distress when he'd seen a doctor because he felt the doctor talked at him and didn't listen and didn't ask. And, of course, when we hear those comments that Phil makes about the, the inability of medical practitioners to be able to see people more than once, um, to be able to build long-term relationships, we start to understand the systemic drivers of the pain and distress that a child is feeling when they need medical care, and that shouldn't be happening in this country. I also think of, of conversations I had very recently in some field work. Um, you know, this goes to the point that Louise made. We imagine a young mum with a two-year-old and a six-month-old baby fleeing domestic violence, race, racing across the country, not able to find anywhere to live, ending up in a caravan park with communal facilities, taking her kids to shower and toilet in a public toilet block and paying, I kid you not, up to $800 a week to live in that caravan park. This is what Louise is talking about when she says people need a roof over their head, a safe place, they need food, and we have to deal with those kinds of underlying drivers of, of mental unwellness um, and of disadvantage, and we have to address them with care and putting people at the centre and valuing care. You know, I, I think that is such a powerful message. But Anna Greta, I know you've got a few things to say about that conversation we just had. Sharon, I don't think I need to add very much to your perspective because you've grounded us in the lives that lives that people lead. Uh, and that's what the healthcare sector is about. It's about giving and supporting and caring for people such that we have meaningful lives, lives that are rich and rewarding. And I, I was really struck by some of the recurring themes through today's conversation and the conversation we had last week with the, in the other health pod with Claire Skinner and Leslie Russell, uh, ideas on how broken our system might be. And, and I think on, on both pods, we've now called out a healthcare system that is not delivering the quality of care that is needed in the Australian context. And I think acknowledging that is extraordinarily hard. And, and I know from my professional life uh, how difficult those conversations are with individuals and with families. A public acknowledgement of just how challenged our healthcare sector is, is tremendously hard. And yet we can't recognise and begin to solve the problems unless we make that core acknowledgement that the system as it stands is not delivering the healthcare that we would expect in a developed country. I'm also struck that this reductionist model of healthcare, that we think about particular problems in their individual silo and our failure to consider the complexity of the human experience. And I'm struck that at medical school, we are trained in the biology of disease and looking at disease processes. And yet for so many of us, as we come out of medical school and we're working with people and we're part of communities, it's the social determinants of health, which so often are, are the amplifiers of distress and disease. Uh, and so the healthcare sector's response to these social determinants, the, the houses that we provide, the, the structures, including the socioeconomic support, are absolutely key to adequate healthcare in a developed country. Finally, we need to invest in time and time and relationships. And I was thinking a little bit about the conversation we had a year or two back with Lyndall Strazen when she talked to us about the value of time 
and how important it is and how we could, if we chose to, prioritise time as an asset within our society, time for caring for ourselves, caring for our community, caring for the world around us. In our healthcare sector, we don't prioritise time. We don't prioritise those conversations, those deep emotional experiences, the connection that we can lead uh, and the impact that we can have caring for others. That's a choice. It's a policy choice that I know we can do differently. Anna that's a, a really powerful message to end on. And I think in all of the conversations that we are having under this what is now not a mini-series but a broad theme around systems under stress, there are policy choices to be made. And those policy choices are often very difficult, but there are indeed choices. I, I think the other important part of this is that we actually have to name what the problems are, as we have been across you know, many episodes of, of the pod. You know, we have to name the fact that we are not prioritising time and relationships. We have to name the fact that there is deep poverty in this country and we are not addressing it. We have to name the fact that we have got failing medical systems, healthcare systems, and perhaps we also need over the next month or two, Anna Greta, to look at things like education systems, child protection systems, you know, and, and, and where we need to have some very frank conversations about what we need to change and the kinds of different policy choices we need to be demanding and allowing our political leaders to make. Really important conversations, and I'm very much looking forward to continuing this theme. Can we squeeze in maybe one more episode on health, perhaps? But we'll see how we go for next week. Anna Greta, I'll do you a deal. If if we squeeze in one or two more episodes on health, maybe we can come back to poverty and we can have a couple of child-focused episodes. We got a deal? Absolutely, Sharon. <laughs> Absolutely. Sounds like a great idea. Listeners, if you or anyone you know are struggling, and so many of us have done so in the last year or so, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or via lifeline.org.au or contact Beyond Blue on 1300 224636 or go to their website beyondblue.org.au. The links and phone numbers are in the show notes as well. We'll leave a link to the publications that we've discussed in today's show notes. We do love feedback, so please reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or you can send us an email or join us on Facebook at Policy Forum Pod. We will be back next week with another episode. So from me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.